you take just a moment, I want to just take uh, the liberty of, I'm the one that gets to speak, so I can say what I want at times, within reason. And I'm just thankful for those folks, uh, that choir, and how they led us this morning. Would you give them a round of applause and thank them for serving the Lord and serving us this morning in such a way. Today we're going to talk about sacrifice, and uh, Christianity requires it, requires sacrifice. That's not popular. It's not a popular thought, it's not popular to say, but, and we live in a society that is so self-absorbed that living for something bigger than yourself seems ludicrous at times it's certainly not valued at the least and in the most it's shunned or mocked the idea of living for Christ and living for something else and putting yourself aside and and sacrificing you may think that's an exaggeration but consider that we think people should be able to do whatever makes them happy and feel good, and they should get a pass if there's consequences that may come from chasing their pleasures. That's what our society believes. Generally speaking, we want the easy way out, and we want to reap all the benefits. We don't want to work hard, but we want all the benefits It's really easy to pin that on others. It's really easy to pin it on the society. It's really easy to to pin it on the other political party. It's real easy to make that something that's out there and it's them and is not us. But I would say even Christians do this as well and, and struggle with this as well. I read an article of a pastor who stole $900,000 from his church and a school associated with the church. It's all of us. It's at the core, and I surmise it's at the sinful core of each and every one of us. It's self-absorption. It's me and mine, and I'm going to take care of me, and I don't care who else uh, gets in the way, and I don't care who else falls to the wayside as long as I've got mine, and as long as I'm taken care of. It's the thing that Jesus is constantly needing to eradicate in our hearts. And it's the thing he is sanctifying us to make him more, make us more like him. It's the imperfections he's chiseling away to make us into the masterpiece that lies beneath and he's creating us to be. So I would say learning sacrifice, learning to sacrifice, learning about sacrifice, and not just learning it, but doing it, is a holy exercise that makes us more like Christ, identifying with his own sufferings, with his own sacrifice, and whittling away all the things in us that don't look like him. 
Christianity requires sacrifice. Today in the passage, Revelation 11, 7 through 14, it shows us the kind of sacrifices we must possess and what rewards await us if we have the willingness to lay it all on the line. So let's begin and continue looking at Revelation chapter 11 and see what we need. And if you're able, would you stand for the reverence of God's word? Revelation 11, verse 7 and following to 14. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them, the witnesses. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of that great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those whom live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. When they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Take note, the third woe is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In this passage, we see the two witnesses that we looked at last week, discussed last week. And, and in this moment, they are killed in a way that mirrors the death of our Lord. They're in the very figurative city that the Lord was there and killed in as well. They said that they were killed in the same city as Jesus. And here it's called Sodom and Egypt. Why Sodom? Why Egypt? Well, Sodom because it was wicked. Sodom is, is the biblical, the New Testament example of utter wickedness. Jesus uh, tells uh, woes to various cities. Woe to you, Chorus, and woe to you, uh, all these cities. And he says, because... Uh, your judgment will be worse than it was in Sodom. He uses that as a, a plumb line of wickedness. So Sodom, because of the wickedness of this city in Egypt, because it was the place where the people of God were persecuted, held in slavery. So that figurative city, the city that Jesus died in and succumbed to sacrifice, mockery, and death. And now these two witnesses, figuratively, are put to death there as well to, to give an example of what our sacrifices ought to be like in conjunction with Jesus's. Now, they are killed by a beast that comes out of the abyss and we're not going to discuss the beast today because what John does here, he's kind of done through the entire book of Revelation. He gives us a picture of, of a figure, a character. He introduces them to us and then later kind of fleshes out 
who they are, what they are, and all that kind of stuff. We're going to do the same when we get to Revelation chapter 13. So just know and kind of put in your hat that they are killed by a beast, and the beast is uh, representative of Satan and his kingdom that's pressing in on Christians and rest and rest uh, really pushing against, wrestling against Jesus' kingdom. And Satan's desire is to devour and steal and kill and destroy. We know this. We've heard it again and again and again, and that is what he's doing. He is stealing and killing and destroying these two prophets that tormented, it says, the people. All they did was stand and proclaim Jesus, and that is torment to onlookers. And friends, a reminder that you and I as followers of Christ, merely by us trusting Jesus, there is a system in place that the ruler of the darkness does not like and you and I following in Jesus' footsteps, that alone is offensive to this kingdom and to this way of this enemy and those who follow him. So it seems in this moment it must have it must have seemed like somehow he won. I think about the disciples. In the moments following, the days following, the hours following Jesus himself dying, they thought he was going to be a king. They thought he was going to rule and rally a people together and overthrow the kingdom and become a, 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 the, the, the one on the throne and that they would follow him. And some thought they'd even sit at his right and left hand and be in this state of power. And all of a sudden, this guy they followed for three days is dead. Can you imagine how they felt. And in this moment, it feels like they won. The, the beast's kingdom won. Satan's kingdom won. What will we do? What will we be able to do? He's too powerful. He's too strong. And I say, nay, he's not. No, he's not. Because three days later, in both instances, something amazing happened. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, resurrected bringing life and in the, in the midst of it, defeating death, hell, and the grave and all the power that Satan thought he had, Jesus defeated it. And in this moment, in a mirroring way, three days later, these witnesses rise with the breath of life in them doing the same. And it's the sacrifice of the witnesses that ultimately wins the day. Listen, your life as a Christian is not meant to be easy. It is, a, it is rewarding. It is a blessing. It is joy-filled. But it requires sacrifice. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that we are to fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Philippians 3.10. Paul tells us that we may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. That we may be caught up in the likeness of what he did and the sufferings. Now, will we all be killed at the hand of some beast in the streets, left for dead? 
for our faith. Will we do that? I hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. But Jesus is infinitely more valuable than even life. And if that's what I must endure, so be it. The point of this is don't let this world that is run by the one who wants to destroy us, don't let this world be more pleasing in your sight than Christ and his kingdom and eternity that he brings to you and I. See, we give ourselves to the kingdom of the world too often. And what Jesus wants is for us to understand that we are his and what he offers us is far greater than what we could ever experience here. So the first thing we see is following Jesus requires sacrifice. The second thing that we see is following Jesus may result in being shunned. Interestingly, the martyred witnesses are not given any sort of a burial which in any culture in the entire world is atrocious. No culture in the entire world does not bury their worst criminals. So for them to be left for dead in the streets... For people to mock over and give gifts to one another over is atrocious and dishonorable in every culture. However, not only is there no burial, but these people are having a party in the streets over their dead bodies, giving gifts to one another, rejoicing. God is dead. He's not real. These Jesus followers are idiots and idiotic that they would give their life to him. Look what he allowed them to endure. Look at the suffering they face. And where is he? Can you imagine what folks would possibly say today if something similar happened in various places in the world? And can I tell you, stuff like this happens in various places in the world where people martyred by, by their culture, by their uh, neighbors, by the people they are sharing the gospel with every day, and people are mocking them and mocking their God and saying, look, it's just a fairy tale, it's just a myth. Jesus is not real. If you spit any time on Twitter or other places, mostly just Twitter, and I've, I've found myself in rabbit holes. Anybody else, you just followed the rabbit hole and you wish you didn't get there, and you're, but you're there. And a lot of times it's because I'm trying to figure out this culture in our world right now of deconstruction, people leaving the faith and not just leaving it but being the the greatest evangelist for de deconstructing and mocking the christianity they once held dear and just boggles my mind and so I, i'm i'm researching and finding and trying to find and guess what i find mocking mockery saying i can't believe i ever believed these myths and these things and i 
just don't understand it, but it is our world even today. It's hard for us to look at something like this and where we live and even when people don't have a faith in Jesus or don't go to church, oftentimes they're at least cordial enough or loving enough that they would never do that. But there are people and there are places where this type of mockery might even take place today. We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus told us that this would happen. John 15, 18 through 21, he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all the things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. So we shouldn't be surprised that it could lead to mockery. It could be resulting in being shunned. The thing is, is that we can't let our faithfulness to Christ be affected by something like this. It can't be contingent upon whether people like me or not. Our faithfulness to Christ and to Him matters for eternity, and that's what matters most. That's hard. That's hard. I'm a people pleaser. I want everyone to like me. I don't like when people are upset with me. I don't like people not liking me, and so it's hard. I want to be a people pleaser. I want people to like me, but at the end of the day, I certainly don't want to be uh, mocked and definitely don't want to die, as indicated here, but I must cling to the gospel message of Jesus Christ and share it with the world, no matter the consequences, and that's what we all must do. Third thing that we see is that following Jesus breathes life into unexpected situations. You may be thinking, Derek, this has kind of been a downer, right? This, I, this is tough. This is hard. This is hard to face, but there's good news. There's good news in this passage. See, this story doesn't end. It continues to follow Jesus' story and that the witnesses are lying in the streets for three and a half days, and then God does something that demonstrates his power among the scoffers. He does what he did in Ezekiel 37, 5, and God breathes life into the bodies of the witnesses like he breathed life into the valley of dry bones, and life came from something that was dead. Jesus breathed life into it, and that's what he does. Jesus breathes life into unexpected situations. When you think the odds are all against you, when you're at the bottom of the seemingly bottomless pit, you're just continuing to spiral out of control. That's when Jesus shows up the most and breathes life into the hardest things, into the biggest trials that we face. Jesus is there breathing life into what was once dead and now is full of life. Jesus gives us life. That's what he does. He does the unexpected. And dead things are given life. Ezekiel's account 
And 37 gives us a picture of how God breathes life into dead sinners and gives them new life as new believers. It's an a, a Old Testament shadow of what Christ was going to do. And it reminds us that today, Jesus still breathes life into dead sinners and gives them life. Jesus fills us with the Holy Spirit to empower us to face whatever lies ahead of us. I'm not sure how to say it any more plainly or passionately. If you today are dead in your trespasses and sin, all hope is not lost. Jesus can bring life to you today. And as Romans 10, 13 says... You can call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Friends, today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, call on the name of the Lord and he will bring life to you. The final thing that we see is that following Jesus causes onlookers to glorify God. It was not the, the peals of the trumpets that turned people It was not the earthquakes and the bloodshed and the wars and the rumors of the war. It was not that that turned people's life and caused them to glorify God. It was the fact that followers of Jesus stayed the course, went through the roughest of trials, even death, were breathed life into, and then as a result, an earthquake happened, People did die, but it was only one-tenth. In the other Old Testament passages, we see a parallel where it's nine-tenths died, and just this moment, only one-tenth did because of the earthquake. And what did they do? They looked on this whole situation, amazed at who God is, and amazed at the faithfulness of the people, no matter what came against them. And that was the thing that turned them to glorify God. So what does that mean for us in closing? It means that you and I, no matter what we face, no matter the trial you're going through right now, and I know, I know there are many in this room facing the hardest things they've ever faced. Your sacrifice, your sufferings are not in vain. Because when you and I are faithful to Christ through our trials, through our cancers, through our pains, through our losses, through the loss of our loved ones that have been with us for so long and it's so hard, it's so difficult to be without them any longer, through our trials, through our sacrifices, through our pains, and through our sufferings, the world looks on, baffled. How could they do that? How could they be so strong? How could they carry on when blank happened, when cancer happened, when loss of job happened, when difficulty happened, when loss of loved one happened. How can they continue on? 
It's oftentimes through our pains and our sufferings that God uses them to bring glory to His name, not only among our own lives and our own families, but among the lost, among the, those dead in their trespasses and sin. And my prayer is that you would understand today, whatever your trial you're walking through right now, God has not left you. He is with you. Sometimes carrying you when you can't make another step. But He's there. And the beauty of it is that even in that trial, and even though you have Christ and your church family and your, your loved ones surrounding you and helping you, and it's hard and it's difficult, don't hear me say, you just got to get better because, man, you, you wallow in that pain because it's hard and sometimes you just need to grieve. Sometimes you need to ask God why and God's not surprised by that. He lovingly carries us in the midst of those things. But the beauty of it is, is that God can use it for something bigger. And He can help people to be able to glorify Him in their own lives when nothing else mattered to them, nothing else changed their mind, nothing else convinced them, but He can look on them and say, how do they do that? There's a story I love to read, and the story, it's, it's actually one of the things that uh, apologists, people who defend the faith, use to show people that Christianity is real and it has been real. And that is, there's ancient texts that show us where the earliest Christians baffled the folks that were around them because it was when their, when their loved ones died, when their children even died, they were able to rejoice. And people were like, what in the world is wrong with these people? We have Christ. He carries us. In, the, in the, the hardest times we face. So no matter your trial, Christ is with you, carrying you. And my prayer is that the world will look on and see that's something to look into, that's something to invest and investigate and invest in. That God would use our sufferings. And just like through Jesus' sufferings, you and I came to faith in Christ that through our sufferings, others might find Him as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we are Your witnesses. Acts 1.8 reminds us of Jesus' words saying those very things. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other parts of the earth. And so, Lord, we carry your name may we Lord stand to the end standing only in the strength that you provide but when we go through trials and difficulties and when we face the hardest things help us continue to rely on you 
And Lord, I pray that you would work in people's lives because of it. Maybe today, in this very moment, someone here has tried to live their life in their own strength. But you are whispering to them, maybe the loudest they've ever heard it, Lord, that they must let it go and trust in you. Lord, would you save someone today, Lord? Would you infuse confidence into one of your own children, Lord, struggling in this moment? Would you give us what we need to know that you're with us and you never leave us and you're not dead, you are alive and you breathe life into the most unexpected situations. God, would you breathe life into this moment now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and if you're hearing from the word, hearing from the voice of the Lord in this moment, would you just respond to him however he is leading you as we sing?